six months that changed the world, the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. Lecture 2. The Paris Peace Conference Meets in Paris. In the last lecture, I looked at the impact of World War I, and that was very important because you cannot understand, we cannot understand the Paris Peace Conference and what the peacemakers were actually dealing with unless we understand the war that had just happened. Evidence of that war was all around them. They saw it in Paris. A lot of them took a trip up to the, the battlefronts of the Western Front. I mean, it was just a short drive or, or train ride from Paris. They picked up souvenirs. There was one optimistic American professor who picked up a few unexploded shell fuses until someone pointed out that these might be rather dangerous, and he hastily dropped them. But, you know, this was something that was very much on their minds. They also knew that Europe was in turmoil. They feared that revolution might spread, that... Misery was going to spread even more than it already had. And so this is what they were dealing with. And when you try and understand things in the past, you have to put yourself in the position of the people. Then you have to know what it was they were dealing with. You can't expect them to deal with other circumstances than the ones in which they had. Now, what they thought they would do was have a peace conference. And the reason they thought this was because that's how wars had always ended before, ended as far back as anyone could remember. You had a war battles won and lost, someone was a winner, someone was a loser, and then both sides, winners and losers, sat down and hammered out a mutually agreeable peace. And that's what had happened at the end of the Napoleonic Wars at the Congress of Vienna, which was a precedent that a lot of the people in Paris in 1919 had in mind. At the Congress of Vienna between 1814 and 1815, the winners, the British, the Prussians, the Austrians, and the French, who were the losers, sat down and they negotiated a peace. And the same thing happened at the end of the Franco-Prussian War. And so everyone expected, because that was the way you sort of did it, that there would be a similar peace conference in Paris. Now, some discussion about whether to have it in Paris, Woodrow Wilson was not all that keen, nor was Lloyd George, because it was felt that the French atmosphere, the French public, would put too much pressure on them. I mean, there were a lot of demands in France for revenge on Germany, and it was felt that Paris would not provide the sort of quiet atmosphere in which to have a proper peace negotiation. And so there was some talk of actually having it somewhere like Geneva until reports came in to Woodrow Wilson that Geneva was full of anarchist watchmakers who were going to try and assassinate them all, and so he decided this wasn't a good idea. George Clemenceau, the French prime minister, also insisted that the conference be held in Paris. As Lloyd George said later, we didn't want to have it there but the old man wept and carried on, and so we finally gave in and agreed. At any rate, Paris was chosen as the site for the peace conference, and in January, the various delegates began to meet. Now, what was meant to happen was that the Allies, and there were some 30, I think 32 Allies in all, would sit down, first of all, for about three weeks in January and hammer out some common peace terms which they would then invite the enemy nations, the defeated nations, Germany, Bulgaria, Austria, Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire to come and discuss. So the first stage of the peace conference in Paris was actually meant to be a preliminary peace conference. But what happened is that the German terms in particular were so difficult to hammer out and involved so many compromises and such controversy that when they finally got them together, it was the beginning of May, and no one in Paris, among the Allies, really wanted to reopen the whole set of peace terms by negotiating them all over again with Germany. And so what had happened between January and May 1919 is that what was meant to be a preliminary peace conference had actually turned into the real thing. There wasn't any one moment where people said, oh, 
We're no longer having a preliminary peace conference. We're now seem to be engaged in a full-scale peace conference. It simply slid into it, and people began to recognize that this, in fact, happened sometime around March 1919. The second thing that happened was that what had initially been intended as full participation in the negotiations and the drawing up of the terms by all the allies had also itself slid over into a peace conference dominated by the most powerful figures there. It would have been impossible to draw up peace terms with every nation from tiny Costa Rica, little Montenegro, to the United States, Britain, and France sitting around the same table. I mean, it would have been simply too cumbersome. And Clemenceau, for one, was not prepared to do it. Um, When there were complaints just at the beginning of the peace conference that the smaller nations were not being consulted properly by the big powers, Clemenceau said, how many soldiers did you lose? He said, we've paid for this. And in a way, he was right. And so increasingly, the major decisions at the peace conference were being made by three men representing the three biggest powers, the United States, Great Britain, and France. Woodrow Wilson, David Lloyd George of Great Britain, and Georges Clemenceau of France. And so what I'd like to do today is look at those big three, look at the countries which they represented and the national interests which they brought with them to Paris, but also look at the three men themselves, because their personalities and their interaction was going to play a very important part in shaping the peace as well. The peace conference, in a way, had two structures. There was the informal structure and the one that really mattered, where the most powerful nations met first in the Council of Ten and then in the much smaller Council of Four and discussed the big issues, and all the major issues really had to be referred to them for decision. But there was a formal structure, which had been set up right at the beginning, which mattered to a lesser extent. But let me just say something about it. The formal structure was that there would be a sort of supreme council, that became the Council of Ten, which would meet, but there would be a big plenary council. Every country that had official delegates, and all the countries that participated did have official delegates. Some only had two if they were small countries, some some had three, and the big powers each had five. They were called plenipotentiaries. And so in those plenary sessions, all the plenipotentiaries from both the big and the small countries were to meet. And the original idea was that they would discuss all the major issues. Well, of course, the plenary sessions were much too big, far too many people. And the great powers really did not want to spend their time debating with, say, the representative of Costa Rica or the representative of Thailand or the representative of Serbia. And so although the smaller nations complained, the major decisions, in fact, were made by the powers themselves. And when they complained at one point to Clemenceau, Clemenceau, the French prime minister, said, look, we're the ones who lost the lives. We're the ones who, who poured out the money and the blood. We're the ones who are going to make the decisions. And it was a true reflection of, of the power structure of the world. And so the plenary sessions became really more or less rubber stamps. And, and in think, I think in the end, there were only six of them. Now, the smaller nations did have another role, and that was actually more important and significant because as the peace conference went on, all sorts of special committees and commissions were set up. And so representatives from the smaller nations sat on those and in many cases played a very important part. I mean, there were endless, or what seemed like endless committees. There was a special committee on international aviation, for example, on which I, I happen to know there was a Canadian representative. Another special commission on inland waterways, where again, smaller nations had representatives. And so the representatives from the smaller nations did play a role but not as originally envisaged. It's a bit difficult to count how many people were there because you had the official delegates, what were called the plenipotentiaries, and there were probably about 200 of them. 
But almost every delegation brought with it a whole lot of experts and advisors. And so probably there were more than, I would say, more than about a thousand people, possibly more in Paris in various capacities attending the peace conference. The other thing that was meant to happen at the Paris peace conference was that it was meant to be a public sort of peace conference with all the nations who were on the winning side participating. And since there were, in fact, quite a lot of nations on the winning side, this rapidly proved to be unworkable. It was unworkable to do the negotiations publicly, and I think this is understandable, although the press didn't find it very understandable. But if you are talking about very tricky issues, you need to be able to debate them in private before you make them public, I think, otherwise you don't get anywhere. And it is impossible to try and hammer out common terms when you have about 30 nations represented in a room. And so what happened is that the major powers created or, or turned themselves into what came to be called the Council of Ten. In a way, this was a continuation of what had been the Supreme Allied War Council, making war against the Germans and, and their allies. And the Council of Ten was made up of the leaders of what were considered the five big powers and their foreign ministers. The five big powers were, in alphabetical order, Britain, which in fact was there as the British Empire, France, Italy, Japan. And Japan was a curious one to be there because, in fact, it wasn't yet a major world power. It was an Asian power, but not yet a major world power. But the Japanese were there really as a courtesy to the British. The British were an ally of the Japanese and the United States. The Council of Ten, the leaders of these five countries, plus their foreign ministers, also proved to be unworkable. And so in March... 1919, Woodrow Wilson suggested that the big four, um, Japan was now tactfully shunted aside from being a major power, the big four meet, and they meet not with their foreign ministers, they just meet the four of them. And what that meant was David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, Vittorio Orlando, the Italian Prime Minister, Georges Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister, and Woodrow Wilson, the American President. I'll, I'll come back and look at each of these in some detail a little bit later on. The Council of Four was initially not going to have any secretary at all. Wilson said, we'll be able to discuss things much more openly and frankly and come to some agreements without having anyone else there. But in fact, of course, they got themselves into such a tangle because since no one was making notes, they could never remember from day to day what it was they'd actually agreed. And so they eventually brought in a secretary. And that has given us, in fact, a wonderfully complete record of what this very, very important Council of Four discussed. And they discussed literally everything that you can think of that might have come before the Paris Peace Conference. I mean, I've looked at all the records and, and you get discussions which go from the borders of, of Poland, which was now becoming a country again, to the possibility of a Kurdistan, to the Jewish presence in Palestine, to international labor questions. And so everything that was being discussed in Paris, or almost everything, came before the Council of Four. And as I say, we have a pretty complete record of it. And a very, very interesting record it is because you get very frank discussions among four very, very powerful men. The major leaders came to Paris, but of course they brought with them, in many cases, very large entourages. Foreign ministers came, they brought their diplomats. Um, this was a time when the diplomats, in fact, were feeling slightly aggrieved because increasingly their political superiors were beginning to do the negotiations. And a lot of diplomats grumbled. They said diplomacy really is being pushed to one side, and this is a very bad thing. I think they would certainly not like what has happened today when you get summit meetings among major world leaders. So you had 
political leaders, their foreign ministers, their diplomats. They brought their military experts to advise them. They brought financial advisors. They also brought people who didn't work for the government at all. And this was really one of the first conferences where you begin to get specialists from the private sector or for the, from the non-governmental sector, such as bankers, for example. A um, number of bankers, Thomas Lamont, for example, who was a very prominent banker with J.P. Morgan in New York, came to give advice to the Americans. And you also got academics. This was really one of the first conferences where you begin to get the professors coming out. Um, perhaps not something uh, that was a desirable development, but something which has gone on happening ever since. The various nations who came to Paris, and there were in the end about 32 of them, of course, brought the general goals that we've talked about before, the goals of somehow punishing the guilty for the war, setting the peace terms for the defeated nations, and perhaps, if they could, building a better world. But they each, of course, brought their own national interests and their own national agendas. Let me start by looking at the big three. Let's start, and I'll do it alphabetically so that um, no one will feel uh, hurt or left out here. Let me start with the big three, the three most powerful nations in the world. First of all, the British Empire. Great Britain controlled the world's biggest empire in 1919, it was still considered the world's dominant power. It had the biggest navy in the world. It stretched around the world. It had the biggest um, financial empire in the world. A good deal of foreign investment in the world was British. But Britain was not as powerful as it had been. The war had cost Britain very dearly. It had had to sell off a lot of its overseas holdings. It had cost it, of course, in manpower. And you were beginning to see financial power passing to the United States. The United States was not yet the power it was to, be, to become. But if you look back, and it's always easier to see, of course, when you look back, you could see signs that British power was declining and American power was beginning to grow. Another very important thing that had happened to the British Empire during the First World War was that the dominions... Them. They were called in those days the White Dominions, and that did in fact reflect their population or at least the people who dominated them. The Dominions were beginning to be much more assertive. The Dominions were Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Newfoundland, which in those days was separate from Canada, and South Africa. And India was sometimes lumped in with them, although it was not yet as independent, but it had also made a huge contribution to the war. The dominions were beginning to really feel their own importance in the British Empire. They had already begun to do this a bit before the First World War, but the First World War had been very much a demonstration of just how important the dominions were to Britain. Without resources from the dominions, whether wheat or minerals or money or, most importantly of all, manpower, the British would not have been able to continue fighting between 1914 and 1918. What that meant was that Britain had become aware that it relied on its dominions in ways that it perhaps hadn't done before. And it meant that the dominions became much more aware of their own value to Britain. It's very, very interesting. At the beginning of the war, the leaders of countries such as Canada are rather polite and deferential when they come to London. Well, by 1918, they aren't. They're coming in, they make demands, they're complaining, they're criticizing the British management of the war. And so when Britain came to the Paris Peace Conference, it had to consider its own dominions. And the British actually made an attempt to argue before the Peace Conference that they could represent all the dominions, and there was, in fact, a considerable row 
And a number of the Dominion prime ministers said, this won't do. We'll go home if we don't have our own representation. And so Britain, in fact, came to Paris as the British Empire delegation, not as Great Britain. And the British Empire delegation met frequently during the Paris Peace Conference, and the British had to explain what they were up to. The British still dominated the British Empire, but their dominance was very much less than it had been. And the British Empire delegation, incidentally, all stayed in the same hotel in Paris. This was known as the Hotel Majestic, still there in Paris, but no longer longer an hotel. The British were concerned about spies, uh, not German spies, French spies, because Britain and France's friendship was, in fact, a very new friendship. And they remembered their long-standing enmity, as I think they perhaps do sometimes today. And so the British government fired the entire staff of the Hotel Majestic, including the cooks, and brought in staff from a railway hotel in the British Midlands. And this staff obligingly produced British food rather than French food, much to the fury of a number of the people who were staying there. The head of the British Empire delegation and the British Prime Minister was a very interesting man called David Lloyd George. He had been a radical politician in his youth. He came out of a rather non-traditional background for British prime minister of those days. And in his time, in David Lloyd George's time, most British prime ministers came from the upper classes. They had aristocratic connections. They had gone to the great universities. They'd gone to the great schools. Lloyd George had done none of these and didn't have the aristocratic connections. He wasn't, in fact, English at all. He came from Wales, a small part of the British Isles, and he came from a lower middle-class family. He had risen in politics before the First World War, had been Chancellor of the Exchequer, had therefore a great deal of experience in both finance and administration. Interestingly enough, he had never really been seen as a strong foreign policy person. He'd not had all that much interest in foreign policy, And not all that much interest in military affairs, unlike his great friend Winston Churchill, who was a colleague in those days. Lloyd George, however, had become prime minister during the First World War at a time when it looked as if Britain couldn't hang on. And people widely regarded him as the one man who could rally Britain, keep the war effort going. He was enormously efficient, um, enormously energetic. And he was widely seen at the end of the war as the man who had won the war for Britain. He tended not to like professional diplomats and to prefer to do the negotiations himself. Professional diplomats, in return, didn't much care for him. Um, They were always very snooty about his geography, which it must be admitted was rather bad. There's a famous story of Lloyd George looking at a map of the South Pacific, and he should have known it because it was part of the British Empire, and saying, good heavens, I never realized that New Zealand was on that side of Australia. And so he was not, in some ways, a man with a great deal of experience in foreign policy. What he did have was tremendous intelligence, tremendous energy, and I would argue tremendous common sense. And he was going to play a very, very important part in the Paris Peace Conference in trying to make the peace terms reasonable. He did not want to grind Germany down. He regarded this as a foolish and short-sighted policy, although he certainly had no love for Germans and for the German military. But he recognized that Europe would be the worse if Germany collapsed into misery, And he recognized that Britain's own interest lay in having an economically strong Germany because a lot of Britain's trade before the First World War had been with Germany. Lloyd George came and the British came to Paris in a relatively strong position because they had already got much of what they wanted before the peace conference opened. Britain really had two main 
things that it wanted out of the peace. One of these was Germany's colonies, and the British Empire was still very much an alive force. And Lloyd George, although he'd been an old radical, was in fact a considerable imperialist. And he and others in Britain and elsewhere in the empire saw Germany's, Germany's colonies as something that should properly come to Britain. Well, most of Germany's colonies were in fact already in British hands or in the hands of the British dominions. In Africa, South Africa had conquered German Southwest Africa, today's Namibia. Um, German troops um, had been driven out of Uganda and Tanganyika. Both of those were under, under the control of the British. And in the South Pacific, Australians and New Zealanders had taken the various German islands. The second thing that Britain had wanted out of any peace settlement was the destruction of German naval power. One of the things that had driven Britain into an alliance with both France and Russia before the First World War had been Germany's decision to build a big navy. Germany had not had a large navy. It had the largest army in Europe and it never really needed a navy. But for various reasons, the German government and Kaiser Wilhelm II had decided that Germany must have a navy. And the only power in the world which would feel challenged by the growth of a large German navy was Britain. Very, very foolish move on the part of Germany because it drove Britain into the enemy camp. What the British wanted, of course, was the destruction of that German navy. And they were also in a strong position on that when they came to Paris. When Germany asked for its armistice, one of the conditions was that it should hand over its navy to the Allies. Well, in fact, it was easiest to hand it over to Britain. And so Germany's submarine fleet, which had caused so much damage to American shipping and, and also to British shipping, went into a port in the south of Britain, and Germany's surface fleet went into the port of Scapa Flow up in the Orkneys. And so although the British technically didn't have ownership of the German fleet, they had it in their hands, and possession, as we know, is nine-tenths of the law. Naval issues, interestingly enough, were going to cause a bit of trouble for Britain in Paris. Not the German Navy, that was really taken care of. But where there was going to be tension, in fact, was with the United States. Although Britain and the United States on many issues saw eye to eye and on many issues were going to cooperate, the one issue where there was considerable tension was over naval power. The United States was in the process of becoming a major naval power, not just in the Atlantic, but also in the Pacific. And there were very real fears that there might be a naval race, as there had been between Britain and Germany before the First World War, between the United States and Britain in the Pacific, and some concern that this might possibly lead to war. It didn't, but it did lead to tension in Paris. Well, these were British aims. This was the British prime minister. This was the British delegation. The second of the big three powers was France. France was headed by Georges Clemenceau, Rather like Lloyd George, an old radical, someone who people hadn't really wanted around much in peacetime because he was a rather difficult man, but again, the sort of person you wanted in a wartime. Enormously energetic, enormously brave. When the Germans were advancing on Paris, for example, in 1918, in their last surge towards Paris, someone said, we should leave Paris, the government should leave Paris, and Clemenceau said, absolutely, let's go to the front and confront the Germans there. I mean, a very brave old man. He was 78. He was the oldest of the big three. It was said that when he died, he left instructions. I don't think the story is true, but it, it says something about him. He left instructions that he should be buried standing upright facing Germany. He had spent a lot of his life seeing the menace from Germany, as many Frenchmen had. He'd been a young man in 1870-71 when German forces had invaded France and Germany, in fact, had been created. 
And he'd spent a lot of his life worrying about Germany and what his great worry was, and it really was the main thing he came to the conference with, was how to prevent Germany from ever menacing France again. And he knew that it might well happen. There were always going to be, thanks to birth rates, more German soldiers than French soldiers. Germany was right there on France's borders. How could France prevent it from being a menace in future? We'll come back to that because it was to be a very important issue for France. The third power, the third of the big three, was the United States. The United States was a relatively new power in the world scene. It had been economically strong, and and its economy had been growing markedly before the First World War, but it had only really begun to exercise its power in the years just before the First World War. It's one thing to have great economic power. It's one thing to have all sorts of resources and a big population, as the United States had, but it's another thing to translate those resources and that population and that economic power into actual military power in the world. And the United States was only just beginning to do that. In 1900, for example, its army was smaller than Italy's army and it virtually didn't have a navy at all. Well, by 1919, it had an army of over a million men and it had a navy which was now challenging the British navy. As this development took place as the United States began to become an actual power rather than a potential power, there were those Americans who argued the United States should exercise more power in the world. There had always been Americans and always been an American interest in exercising power right around the borders of the United States in Central America and in Mexico, for example. But you now began to get people like Teddy Roosevelt arguing the United States had more of a destiny as a world power. Woodrow Wilson, the American president, I think, was torn. Um, He was someone who saw himself as a Democrat, a progressive, who wanted a better world, who who didn't much like war, but he was also very conscious of American power, Um, in many ways rather self-righteous. I mean, there were times when he would talk in a very self-righteous way. He would say, we will force the world to be a better place. And he was very much aware that the United States now had considerable financial and military power. Wilson was a very complicated man, a man of tremendous ideals, but a man who could also be enormously petty. If you disagreed with Wilson, he didn't like it. In fact, he often wouldn't ever talk to you again. On the other hand, of all the statesmen who came to Paris, he expressed the great ideals and the great ideas. Perhaps his most famous expression of his ideas came in the 14 points, a speech that he made in January 1918, And there he talked about some of his ideas, about a different type of diplomacy, where things wouldn't be done in secret backdoor deals, but things would be done openly. He talked about open covenants, openly arrived at. And this was was important to him. He wanted a more open sort of diplomacy. He also believed in trying to build a better world, in trying to push for disarmament, for example, in trying to lower trade barriers on the grounds that the more nations traded together, the less likely they would be to go to war. These are ideals, I think, which are still very important in the world and still very important in the United States today. He also talked about something which came to be a very, very tricky concept, national self-determination. What did he mean by it? And and we will see that it was a very tricky concept. Um, What he seems to have meant is that nations, people who feel themselves to be a nation, should have more control over their own destiny. But did he mean outright independence? Some people thought he did, and it was going to cause all sorts of uh, all sorts of confusion in the world. He perhaps his most important idea 
was the idea that nations should work together to provide security for each other, collective security, that there should be a league of nations. This was his dream, and this is what he worked very, very hard in Paris to do, that a league of nations should be formed where nations would work to prevent aggression, to make the world a better place, to do such things as disarmament. He decided, because he felt this was so important, to lead the American delegation to Paris himself. And this caused some comment in the United States. People said American presidents shouldn't leave the United States when they're in office. He also, I think, and this shows his vindictive side, only brought Democrats with him. His opponents were Republicans. He felt, and he often felt this about opponents, they weren't just wrong, but they were wicked too. And so he didn't include any significant Republicans in his delegation. And I think this cost him political support later on. Clemenceau was the rather cynical one, and he once said that when he sat at these meetings between Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson, he felt like he was sitting between Napoleon and Jesus Christ. Well, it's these three men who had to try and make the peace, but there were other nations. Let me just mention a couple more, and we'll come back to them. Italy came. It was considered one of the big four powers, not one of the big three. The Italians tended to deal themselves out of the major discussions. Italy had come into the war, and we'll see this later on for very specific reasons, and the Italian statesmen, their prime minister Vittorio Orlando and their foreign secretary Sidney Sonino, tended only to intervene, tended only to talk when Italian interests were at stake. And so they were seen widely as really having a very narrow focus. And that was true also of Japan. The Japanese included, as I've mentioned, as something of a courtesy to Great Britain, which was an ally, only really talked when Japanese interests were at stake. There were smaller powers as well, Belgium and Serbia, both of which had suffered a loss, Greece, which had its own designs, China, which had dreams of recovering what had been German colonies. In addition to all these powers, you also got all these petitioners, people who came because here was the center of, of world power and, and really world government. And so you got people who wanted their own countries, Czechs, Armenians, Irish, Kurds, Ukrainians, and you got interest groups. Women's groups came, suffragettes asking for votes, labor groups asking for more rights for labor, African-Americans asking for civil rights back in the United States, or peoples coming from the European empires. There was rather an obscure assistant chef at the Ritz Hotel who came from a little bit of the French Empire in, in Asia, and he tried to pre present a petition unsuccessfully to the peace conference. He, he never got through the front door. His name was Ho Chi Minh, and we've heard about him later on. And so this was the peace conference as it opened at the end of January 1918. It opened with a wonderful ceremony, a speech from the French president, Raymond Poincaré, who said, the hopes of the world rest on you. And indeed, the hopes of the world did rest on it. But it had a tremendous agenda. It had to drop the peace terms of the defeated nations, and the German terms are going to be the trickiest. It had to sort out borders in the center of Europe and the Middle East. It had to try and rebuild what was really a war-shattered Europe. And finally, it had this wonderful and difficult goal of making a much better world. In the next lecture, we're going to be looking at some of the difficulties which they were encountering because they were dealing with new forces in international relations in addition to this agenda that I've just talked about. One of the forces was over there in the East in Russia, Russian Bolshevism. How did they deal with that? How did they deal with Russia? Russia had been an ally. Should it be invited to Paris? And how did they deal with this other force, which was equally disruptive and, and challenging in its own way, ethnic nationalism. And so what I'd like to do in the next lecture is look at both those forces because they were going to be very important factors in shaping what went on at the peace conference.
This ends Lecture 2.